0: Oh, and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Engel.
1: I'm Tasha Robinson. And today we're talking about minute number 18, which begins with Ripley abruptly ending her call with Burke and ends with a list of names superimposed over a row of cryopods.
0: And yes, that's Tasha Robinson back again for day three as my co-host. Thanks for coming back, Tasha.
1: Sure, absolutely.
0: We also have Kwame Opum back again for day three as well. Thanks for coming back. Good to be back. All right, so Ripley has made her decision. She's in. We got that right, at, right at that minute point, last the uh, last minute. So, the uh, so this conversation is going to continue on for about a fraction of a second. <laughs> she just hangs right up on him. She doesn't want to hear anything else.
1: Yeah, I like that we get a like a last look at his like bleary face and his puffy body. I mean, he's not a big guy or anything, but this is just not a flattering look. Like. Note to self: When doing a uh, you know weekly Skype calls with the office, like, do not take off shirt and like loom forward into camera. It's not a flattering <laughs> angle.
0: Well, you gotta you gotta have something to fill the frame to hide those three monkeys behind you, though. So I don't know how else you're gonna do that.
1: Oh God, you you, you realized my fast. secret. I was just projecting Burke's sex life because of my own sex life. I now I now I'm worried that you're gonna hear the ball bouncing around in the camera. <laughs> You know it's
0: funny though that Burke's he kind of starts back into a salesman routine, right? He's about to start a hey, Ripley. Thanks, you're not going to regret this and give all that bullshit, right? And she's like, no, it's like <laughs> no, one, no need to hear any more of that, and just pulls the plug. I found that kind of funny, but I also found it kind of strange considering like, it seems as though she doesn't like him at all. I mean, she's shut the door in his face once and hung up on him another time, yet. I guess she's she's that's that's an indicator of how desperate she is. She's willing to go along with the plan, despite the fact that this guy's clearly not trustworthy or anybody that she cares for all that much.
1: I like the fact that when she hangs up on him by pulling the card out, we get this close up of the slot and it actually says front loading logic card on it, which is like I mean, can you imagine if like every time you go to pick up a phone, it said phone or
0: (laughs) your phone? You don't have a tag. You don't have a label on your phone. Like I mean, I just, I just have. I'm so busy. I just have to make sure. I'm sorry. See, so you don't just like
1: randomly pick up a, a banana or a shoe and hold <laughs> yeah. it to your head while you're talking. Well,
0: I have a lot of black objects lying around. I just don't know. I mean, I've if got like three hard drives. A problem. If it's a banana, I'll know better. It's got emergency yellow. It's emergency yellow colored.
1: I mean, bananas sometimes go black.
2: Oh, That's true,
0: and I am busy enough to let them do that. That's that's my point.
2: All the technology the... I use has to be labeled with what they are. <laughs> like my computer has to be labeled computer. My TV has to be labeled TV.
1: But but it's not I mean it it doesn't say communicator. It says front loading logic card. Like by that logic your TV shouldn't say TV. It should say like I don't know televisual visual communication device. I don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the technology behind a TV.
0: Yeah, and and if you're, I mean, if the slot is right there in the front of the, why do you have to tell me it's front loading? Like, oh, anyway, you're right. It's very strange.
2: This device was clearly not designed by Apple.
1: This is just such a close-up. You can actually actually see that it looks like a, a decal, like a printed decal stuck onto the machine. I mean, somebody in set design thought of that this is going to be close up. We we need front-loading logic card or written on here. Somebody wrote that.
0: I know. It's, it's a little, it's kind of a strange bit of, I don't know, unnecessary <laughs> set design that you don't usually get. I mean, we're so used to that amazing minimalism of Alien, right? Where they didn't even communicate directions on the ship with uh, with words they had symbols that indicated everything and then here we get like very on the nose stickers that tell you what things are
1: Well, I mean, we extrapolated so many things in the last minute about the dystopia Ripley lives in. Maybe we're not extrapolating enough here. Maybe the existence of a front-loading logic card machine means we should be extrapolating, you know, in the next office over. They've got the rear-loading logic card machine or the top-loading logic card machine. Maybe she's got the cheap model.
2: Was the card that Burke handed her a logic card? Apparently. So... I guess, does that have multiple purposes then? I mean, if you're handing a card to someone that can call someone, can it do other things if it's in a rear-loading logic <laughs> card machine? You see, maybe, but, you know, it's
0: we talked about our smartphone age that we're in where this tiny little device does so much. In that particular case, she really didn't have to prompt it to do anything. That seems to be the only purpose it has. It has a little barcode on it mm. that dials Burke up at that one location. Apparently, there's no either, there's no choices. There's nothing. So apparently, that is what that that card. The data that is on that logic card is a phone number. Ugh. Which yeah, I mean, thinking about that now, it's like wow, you really don't need that much. That's like the least amount of data possible to put on something.
1: I mean, maybe he's got the maybe he's got a matching logic card. Which, by the way, I just I love. Kwame was talking in the last one about uh, how many of those is he carrying around, and I, I love the image that his wallet is like six inches thick. You know, because he has a half a dozen. <laughs> he's got cards a castanza
0: a, Costanza, a Costanza wallet full of logic <laughs> cards.
1: But you know, maybe. <laughs> Maybe he's got some sort of, like, logic device on him that tells the, the system, tells the station where he is, and the logic card is capable of finding him. Because otherwise, if it's, if it's basically just a, you know, call my front-loading logic card machine in my teeny tiny little room, it's like, presumably he's not going to be there a lot of the time. He's going to be out weaseling people. You know, when he's at work, maybe it, maybe it can find him when he's at work or find him when he's walking around the station trying to talk people into suicide missions or whatever. Maybe there's more to it than just a phone number, because otherwise he could have just like scrawled it down on a piece of paper and handed it to her.
0: That's true. Maybe he's that. maybe that's not his place. Maybe that's the the monkeys apartment that he's in right now. And, you know, it just finds it wherever she's throws it. in. Of course, he answered. I guess the monkeys would have answered the phone. I hadn't even
1: thought about that. Well, no, because it it comes up, uh, you know, phone call for Burke, not for monkeys. Okay. Because it's it's his logic card. (laughs) But no, actually, that's a really good point. It could be be somebody else's place. Maybe that's why he's looking over his shoulder.
0: I'm sorry. I just like the visual of a screen popping up with text that says phone call for Burke, parentheses, not for monkeys. I don't know why that just tickled me a little bit. Anyway.
1: (laughs) Also in the director's cut. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh,
0: All right. So... She's hung up on Burke, she's given it a thought, and then she looks over at Jones and says goodbye to Jones. This is kind of a big moment in the in the franchise, so to speak, but it's definitely a big moment for Ripley. This is the last the other last surviving member of the Nostromo crew, and she's bidding him farewell.
1: And it is so not a big moment for him. <laughs>
0: not at all. Again, like going back to Alien, night cat doesn't give a shit about these people <laughs> at all. He doesn't is... mind watching them die. He doesn't care. He possibly is leading them to their deaths, for all we know. But he does love Ripley, I think, uh, to a certain extent. But he's not going back out there, that's for sure. What is poor Jones thinking right here? Just that face. I don't know. Probably about food.
1: Yeah, he's a cat. And who...
0: Okay, you're, you're leaving. All I need to know is who's going to... F- fill the bowl that's about it
1: and am i but, getting better food when you go
0: yeah maybe yeah you know. i mean somebody, <laughs> somebody somebody with a real job might be
1: <laughs> can somebody who still has their pilot's license be in charge of feeding me because they can afford a better, better bread of cat food i mean movies being what they are i just assume that this is a different cat uh than alien and possibly this is three different cats there's the 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 eating cat model and the being held and petted cat model and here we have the glowering cat model like it could be three different cats over the course of this film but it is a little uncanny how in this moment when she's saying her goodbye and she looks over to him it's like pretty much the same expression as when he's watching uh harry dan stanton's character die it's just kind of whatever humans
0: yeah i think i think jones is entirely indifferent to everything pretty much (laughs) it's all the same to him But I do think there's a significance to this. There's a significance to this moment, too, um, that goes back to things Mitch and I were talking about back in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And that was how Cameron seemed to he was well aware of Alien. I mean, obviously, but of the tone of Alien, specifically what I'm talking about. And in the first 10 minutes or so, you get an idea that he was mindful of. Of orienting the audience into the film, saying, "Okay, you know the Alien. That's a different movie. That's not going to be my movie. But I'm not going to just like blast through the screen and give you James Cameron right away. I'm going to. He plays around with a lot of techniques and pacing uh, that is more Ridley Scott, and it slowly, subtly starts to fade into a James Cameron movie. Now, that's been kind of he's kind of moved into it for the most part by now. But I really think this moment we get. We get the Jones goodbye, so, so a very specific, deliberate, this is the last other person from Alien. We're saying a person, I said. The last crew member from Alien, we're saying goodbye. And then we have this cut right to a giant rifle flying through space. <laughs> and I feel like this is the point where we're in Cameron land, 100%. He's completely said goodbye to Ridley Scott's Alien, and we're in James Cameron's Aliens now. So I think this is a big moment, between, obviously, between saying goodbye to Jones, but also uh, as far as filmmaking is concerned, I think James Cameron's now completely taken the reins. This is his movie, and from now on, I mean, right away, uh, starting from this point on, we're really in James Cameron land. This is nothing like these characters we're about to meet. They're nothing like anything Ridley Scott would have had in Alien. I think so. In that case, it's significant to the conversation we've been having so far about this movie.
2: Definitely. I think it's a really stark contrast between the tone of the movie up until that Jones moment and then you see the Sulaco, especially when Ripley calls Jones a little shithead where that's a little moment of relief and a kind of a moment of comedy where like Jones looks back and like who are you calling a shithead? And then it cuts to the ship and then like it's perfectly in Cameron's zone at that point and then you move on and you meet the Marines going forward
1: I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think that this is the transition point to Cameron. But I do think it's funny that what's being selected to represent Ridley Scott's Alien as something that we're letting go of, that we're saying goodbye to, is this soft, furry, organic, like, living thing. When Alien itself is, like, a movie of dripping, slimy surfaces and, and hard, cold metal, like... And where Jones himself mostly just represents uh, like opportunities to die. So, like, it, it, it does seem, feel like we're saying goodbye to Alien here in this moment, but I'm not sure that Jones is the best representative of, of what Alien was. But that said, it is definitely Rip, Ripley letting go of, like, the only thing that she has that seems to function as a security blanket. You know, when she wakes up, when she first wakes up and she sees that Jones survived and she reaches for him, it's so much like reaching for comfort. When Burke and Gorman leave in the last minute, as I, I pointed out, are the that moment where she just goes to jones and is like pay attention to me pay attention to me he's like what lady i'm eating here like (laughs) this, this is the one little scrap of comfort that she has in her life and she's consciously choosing to leave it behind as she goes off into the unknown
0: well i guess for the uh for the nerds out there we should probably talk about the sulaco a little bit um you know people like to get into a little bit of technical talk and i think it's kind of interesting it comes from this information I've gotten about the Slaco. It comes from the Alien's Colonial Marines Technical Guide, which is pretty pretty interesting. I know it sounds hilarious, but it's, it's a funny story. This guy got a hold of props and went wild and did it all by himself and apparently got this thing published. He just was able to get access to the props and everything and sort of wrote his own history. So it's not – it predates Internet, Wikipedia, you know, retconning, and I think it's kind of fun. But the Sulaco itself is uh, apparently was considered to be a pretty unlucky ship. Uh, It was, of course, it was the 13th of its kind produced and had many uh, horrible accidents that (laughs) ended in fatalities and so on. With that knowledge, it's like, what the hell? Like, did Ripley know this before she got on? I really hope not. But anyway, I just wanted to throw out the name of the ship and give it a little bit of background. There's not much else to it than that. Maybe I'll actually cut that whole section out of the episode. Okay. No, no, no.
1: <laughs> um, when you when you brought up the title, I laughed, and you said, "Yeah, I know it's funny," but no, the reason that I laughed is because uh, the Colonial Marines Technical Manual was my first professional review. My it was it was literally the first thing I wrote about as a a professional critic. Like coming out of my college newspaper, uh, somebody who liked my writing hired me to work for a science fiction website um, that eventually sold to uh, the sci-fi channel before it was sci-fi.com. And like the first thing they handed me was this manual. And I just I remember reading it and reading about like the metric tonnage of the Sulaco and like all of these details that that basically would be really cool if you were running a like a really technical like rpg it read so much like an rpg guide um and i just i remember like learning about things like uh armor spalling factor and the exact (laughs) loadout of the marines weaponry and stuff like that and thinking like somebody went through a lot of trouble to come up with all this detail so yeah that's just that's a big blast from the past for me
0: that's good. No, it's really. I find it a very entertaining. Read and it. It does seem like a, a like a labor of love kind of book where this person really went deep into the props and really went into the research and figured all this stuff out. And the like I said, the fact that it predates Wikipedia is makes it all more impressive. Where you get contributions of ideas and you have extended universe. This all pre, predates that stuff, so it's fun. But I was going to say too that to lead into that, we have the Salako. And in the director's cut, here's another cut, we actually get a much more extensive introduction to the Sulaco, uh, the interior of it, before we get to the cryopods. And that's just almost identical to that introduction to the Nostromo we get at the beginning of Alien. We get the camera floating through the hallway, showing us different parts of the ship, and then leading us into the cryo chamber. And I think that I'm on board with the cut in this particular case. Mainly because the Salaka doesn't really become the character, so to speak, that the Nostromo does, and I don't know if it's really important to again to rehash another thing from Alien, like and redo it in the exact same way, and then end up with the cryopods the same way we did in Alien. I think in this case, differentiating yourself from Alien is is more important, and I also feel like we've gotten past Alien. Just like I said uh, earlier in the minute, I feel like that cut to the Salaka was was the point that the similarities ended, and now we have just cutting straight to this cryo chamber and these cold, cold industrial-looking cryo chambers opening. And it's how different that is from that lotus-like little cluster of them that we get in aliens with that symphonic score coming up underneath it.
1: Yeah, this opening shot of the Sulaco is just, it's so strange, because, I mean, it is reminiscent of your introduction to the Nostromo floating through space, except that the the background is just so much more detailed. Like, the Nostromo is introduced to you almost as, you know, this little thing floating through undifferentiated space, whereas the Sulaco's introduction, you know, you've got this star in the background and this, uh, this star wash, this like I don't know space gas uh, I don't know if that's meant to be like a nebula from a distance or like some sort of off gassing like up closer exactly what we're seeing in space here but you know, it's, it's all very picturesque you know it's all very airbrushed side of a van like wonder of the universe kind of thing and it just looks so much more like detailed and vivid and colorful and intense uh, than the opening of Alien does and then this thing like Floats across your screen, and you just get the impression of, like, wow, that is a lot of really pointy stuff. Like, as you say, it's a big <laughs> rifle floating through space. But in a film franchise that is so focused on phallic imagery and phallic monsters and phallic architecture and <laughs> just phallic everything, it's really interesting to me that the, this thing does not look phallic because all of the things, all of the like long, hard protrusions that are weaponized pointing off of it are like either really sharp and pointy or really tiny and narrow or both. It's like they're actively going out of their way to make this thing as like harsh and mechanical and really more like a series of syringes than like the thing that guns are usually meant to represent.
0: I guess it has more of a quill-like, like porcupine quills sort of quality to it that this isn't this is a military uh, vessel. I guess it's more about offense and defense. You know, this is about attack and and, and protecting yourself to survive. And we're not dealing with Giger here either. We're not, in, he's not on the scene at all. So we're not going to probably get any of that stuff. Uh, makes sense to me. I'm not sure if it really would have fit in this movie anyway to try to try, touch on the Giger-like phallic and vaginal imagery and so on that you got from Alien. So to me, it's a good choice. I actually kind of like the design of the ship. I actually think it's fun that it has such a, I mean, it actually has a, a grip on the bottom like a rifle. It's crazy how, how overt it is, but I actually kind of like that because it's a nice jolt into this Marine military world that we're about to enter for the next two hours.
1: There's a little protrusion that looks like a stock, possibly a trigger.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's
2: overt. It's very, it's there. I guess to give you guys some background of where I'm coming from, like this, I saw this movie in college, and I prefer Alien to this. But the thing that always struck me about this film is that I watched this fully after I was only I owned an Xbox and played Halo, and it's so clear that the influence to that game came from this. So anytime I watch Aliens, I think back to that game because the ship design and what we'll see with the characters, particularly with the Pone, are pulled right out of this movie. So it has a very—it's close to my heart in that regard. It's when I was a nerdy teenager, did you see Aliens before Alien? No, I saw Alien first, and then I saw Aliens, and I was like, "Oh, Alien is Alien is a better movie, but I like this a lot." All right, do you guys have anything else for this minute?
1: Mm, no,pe not me. No,
2: I'm pretty good. All right, I guess that's
0: going to do it for minute number eighteen. Uh, Kwame, you want to tell everybody where they can find you on the internet again?
2: Sure, you can find me at TheVerge.com. dot You can also follow me on Twitter at. Lamy Opam and Tasha.
1: Well, you can find me writing about film and TV at the verge.com. Find me writing about books at NPR books and find me talking about film at the next picture show podcast. And you can catch me just talking about whatever, uh, on Twitter at Tasha Robinson.
0: All right. And you can find us on alienminute.com or at, uh, on Twitter at alien minute pod, also on Instagram at alien minute podcast. Uh, make sure to go over to iTunes at some point, if you'd like, and give us a five-star review that really helps us get some, uh, Exposure. That is, if you think that we're a five star worthy show, of course. Anyway, all right, well, that's going to do it for minute number 18. We'll see you tomorrow for minute 19.